Welcome to Learte de l'Arme, the Bolognese podcast where we discuss the intricacies of the Bolognese tradition with the practitioners, translators, authors, and teachers working to bring the art back to life. Greg, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, it's, it's an honor to have you. Um, this is the first time that Stephen and I are doing an interview together. So, Stephen, welcome to doing interviews. Hey, I'm super excited, Joshua. Yeah. Um, so to kind of kick this thing off, um, Greg, one of the first things that we kind of wanted to talk about to kind of set the... We've already given your general introduction, gotten your background in a previous episode of, of Leia to Del Arme. So we want people to go back and listen to that one. But, um, you know, we wanted to kind of kick this one off with... Uh, an approach to pedagogy and teaching. Uh, so oh, okay. one of the things that we wanted to, to ask right up front uh, to kind of set the tone for our conversation today is, um, you know, CSG um, has a really well-defined uh, pedagogical progression. Um, and we were kind of wondering what it, what it takes to take a student from beginner to advanced practitioner and, and what are some of the biggest hurdles um, of taking a student into that latter progression? Sure. Okay. Oh, that's a nice, simple question to get everything started off with, right? (laughs) Okay. Okay. So, um, you know, so the CSG was founded in 99. So we're at like, what, 23 years of history now, right? And um, so over that 23 years, I'd say what we've tried to do and what we've expected has changed quite a bit. Um, Like, I suspect, any group cropping up now you know we started off by okay let's reconstruct these techniques and just follow the book page by page and and um and you know we'll we'll get results um and you will get results but you won't actually necessarily get um pedagogically sound ones and what i mean by that is that any any fencing manual even ones written in the 19th century which are really written you know as training guides um is like any any good plan right it falls apart in first contact with the enemy which in this case is the student um so but when you start getting into the 16th century the 15th century or you know a couple cases the 14th century that's not even how these books are being written so to to try to to think that you're just going to follow the manual and do these plays and um you're going to take someone who knows nothing about anything and you're going to get a, a good result is um, delightfully naively ambitious. And I'm not saying that pejoratively for anybody because I have been delightfully naively ambitious on, on many occasions. But so so what we realized was that, or over time, was that there's a couple things. Um, if you're doing a deep dig, a deep dive into one of these martial arts, you're going to see that there's, there's recurring themes, recurring principles, um, that kind of create your your foundational actions, right? They're your, your foundational mechanics, your foundational t- techniques um, that tactics can then be built on. And so what you want to do is you want to pick things that, that are going to refine and ingrain that into muscle memory without giving the students a million things to learn. So since this is a bolognese podcast, let's keep it, let's keep it on bolognese, okay? Yeah, we'll keep it saucy. We'll keep it very saucy, and I like my sauce spicy. So, all right. So let's say I'm cracking open. 
I'm cracking open, you know, Marozzo or Moncellino, right? And I go, oh, hey, look, there's this big assalto for sword and buckler. Okay, so we'll start off by making this dude who just walked in the door learn this gigantic assalto, okay? Um, which is sort of like what would happen if you say you walked into any Tai Chi class in America right now. Here's the first form. We're going to teach you the form. Um, and maybe they'll learn it and maybe they'll be able to replicate it, you know, in, in a year or so. Maybe they'll be able to replicate it faithfully. Um, but will they be able to do anything with it? And that's the real question. So you could look at it another way. And Morozzo himself alludes to this in his prologue, right? Which is, well, if the guards, the steps, and the blows are the foundations of the art, then what I should do is I should look at a way to teach them the guards, the steps, and the blows so that they can they can execute them and they, they can stand on them, they can frame them instinctually. Um, and so most people figure that out pretty quickly, right? Okay, so I need some simple cutting drills. I need some simple some some simple footwork drills. I, I need to practice guards. But what we what we found is that over the years we went from having a lot of different drills to do these different things to just having a couple. And our, our Bolognese curriculum isn't quite this tight, but like on our Armazari curriculum, for example, we have three core cutting drills that students learn in our intro class and those are designed uh, and I'll, I'll break them in down for you one of them is designed to teach them how to execute a descending cut right the other one is is designed to teach them how to use rising falsi and the third one is designed to teach them how to use the guard posta di finestra right for for those who don't know armazari basically guardia de croce um, but they're not just designed to do that, they're also designed to provide tactics. So the first drill is really designed to teach you at the same time that when you execute a counterattack, there's only a couple things you can do. You either move into an attack, you move away from an attack, so you either get it before it's in full force or you move away and forward on the circumference so you get it when it's losing power. You slip an attack and overrun it. Or the fourth action, if you're too slow to actually counterattack them, you redirect and you attack their sword, right? And you create a beat on the weapon. And so that provides a tactical framework for how you counterattack. And so at the same time they're learning how to cut, they're also learning how to move in those elements. And then the individual plays that come out of that are showing them how to do that against an opponent. But then for example, what's the next thing we do with that? We then plug in different guards. So instead of just learning how from, again, I'll try to keep it in bolo terminology, from Guardia Alta, I'm going to learn how to counterattack with a Mandrito Squalombrado in these four ways. Well, now I'm learning how to do that from an Alicorno, or I'm learning how to do that from what happens when I'm in like, you know, Cota Longue Estrada, and I have to make a preparation to do this, right? Yeah. How's that change the tempo? And then you can take it even further and say, okay, well, now what about if I'm going to make a, you know, I'm going to make a... Uh, true edge rising cut from here and same movement form so now they're learning a whole different cut but they're still learning the same tactical framework so what starts as these three four step drills um, then becomes a framework to teach them a whole bunch of different actions that's marrying tactics to technique um, so that they start to realize oh there's only so many ways i can move and I find this is really important with something like Bolo, where if you if you get lost into the footwork, it has more footwork than any other art any of us study, right? The number of the cross steps, the triangle steps, there, there's right. just so many different 
permutations of the steps too. It's a dancing martial art with some swords so that you can do something while your feet are moving. Yeah, pretty much. That's that's pretty much exactly right. And so, you know, you can make someone lose their mind with that and, and feel totally overwhelmed, or you can try to figure out how to create a few core actions that are going to teach them how to move in a bolognese way, how to just instinctually move from guard to guard, and how to do that through a dynamic transition, aka a blow, right? Yeah. And when you do all that, are they going to know, you know, all of Manchalino's book four? No. But are they going to be able to move in a bolognese way with some ta instinctual tactical understanding? Yes. And then that creates the scaffolding you build on. So that's kind of how we've developed it here. And we do the same thing when we teach wrestling. We do the same thing when we teach dagger. Um, you know, we have some core skills, some core drills that everything is meant to layer upon. Yeah, that's that's really interesting because I've been taking a similar approach. Uh, I took one of Maranzo's sort of, I don't know, I guess you could say kind of dumb phrases that he uses all the time, right? You always see at the beginning of his plays when he says your opponent it can only deliver a mantrito or a reverso or a stoccata, right? And those are the natural blows. Right. Um, and he repeats himself over and over again. He says it all the time. But there, I think there's actually a lot of wisdom behind that because, like you said, understanding that no matter what guard your opponent is in, they can only deliver, you know, X, Y, and Z blows. What I, I actually took the framework, because I've been studying Fiore um, on the side, uh, I know I'm a heretic, but I've been studying Fiore on the side. <laughs> you want to waste your time, go ahead. <laughs> For the last year and a half. And um, so I uh, I actually took this from Fiore because I thought that uh, Fiore's pedagogical pedagogical approach was pretty interesting. Um, and I, I feel like it fits really well with Manciolino in that I've been doing the exact same thing with my students. When I look at Manciolino's attacks, um, I, I see book one of Manciolino and his basic attacks as provocations and attacks that you can do to basically set up what is the true art, which is book three, which is going into Mezzospada, right? And that matches perfectly mm -hmm. with what Fiore does, right? Because, yep. you know, Fiore is basically just trying to get you to the center line so that way you can initiate some sort of a grapple or an offensive action off of that. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that you can take that same strategy into to Manciolino, and that's really what I've been working on. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I totally see that, and I, I, I agree with that a lot. Um, yeah, so I, I'm, uh, yeah, go ahead, Stephen. I'm sorry. Oh, I was going to say, the one thing that gives me pause about this is that Moroto describes using the first assalto as a way to teach new fencers. Mm -hmm. And I kind of wonder, can we really be claiming to be teaching a legitimate historical martial art when we ignore that and go off to the side sure and kind of oh, start I, doing I, stuff that we want to do I, i'm so glad I, stuff I'm, I'm so glad you asked that because i have a i have a perfect slightly snarky answer to that so i'm going to begin by saying the following achille Morozzo is dead as are all these other masters and so the first thing that everybody should understand is you are never going to do Morozzo because, as I said in my last interview, although I said it about Fiori, only Mrs. Morozzo did Morozzo. Okay, <laughs> so Morozzo okay. is forever, man. Right, right. And, and, I, and I have I have an essay that I, I haven't posted yet, but I will, um, because shortly after the Bolo event up in Vancouver, um, you know, 
there was someone pontificating rather rather um, fluidly and floridly uh, about how, you know, I'm so sick of hearing about this frog DNA. I don't use frog DNA. I don't want frog DNA. I don't, you know, I don't like this use of other language that isn't in Bolognese. Then if that's really true, you had best only teach in Italian. And I don't mean just your technical terminology. I mean your language in Italian. Um, you certainly better be fluent in Italian because our community creates jargon where there was none. And you better accept that um, you're not actually teaching anything. You're simply aping instructions that were left behind you. So now that I said that and I was really snarky, what do I mean by that? Okay. So um, I can say that I'm not going to use anything that isn't in the book. Okay, great. Do you exhale when you cut or do you inhale? You can't answer that outside the book. Now, everyone is saying, well, I mean, obviously you exhale when doing work. Really? In some Chinese martial arts, you inhale on internal arts. So Maybe it's, maybe there's doesn't really matter what you're doing. Uh, maybe it does because without oxygen in your blood, you're going to gas pretty right. quickly. So you right? just keep breathing. <laughs> sure. Period. Or, yeah. you know, how do you shift your weight? Right. It's really precise footwork. How do you shift your weight? Um, you know, there's this idea that Vigiani somehow isn't part of the Bolo tradition. And yet, like you just said, much like Morozzo, he says there's only three blows, a mandrito, a reverso, and a thrust, right? Yep. Um, and he couldn't be that critical of of the, the, um, the Bolognese pedagogy without being well-versed in it. Um, but my point here isn't that you shouldn't do the assalto. It's that we don't know that what he means by a new student what he says is that when you get a new student don't put them in the classroom with the other students until they've learned the following so what he's really telling you is that you should learn by private lesson the steps the cuts the guards right and oh by the way don't let your don't let friends train together because it'll be a disaster right if they come in together which is decidedly true and, um, and he does say not to take your beginning students and put them with advanced students right away. That's in exactly. The, that's in the lead up. Exactly. Well, exactly. he does say he says they should be taught by your senior students of a nice disposition. So right, not but, your Guido Rangonis and Hugo Pavolis, right. but some <laughs> but, nice guy. But what, he, but what he's basically saying is your provosts, your provosts or someone assigned by your provost should teach right. them. Right. Yeah. And and he's really following, ironically enough, very similar to what is the modern method of the fencing lesson which is that they usually introduce newbies by private lesson. Then you put them in a basics group class and then the group class ends and it goes all back to the private lesson. Um, right. Very different than what we do in HEMA, which is much closer to how modern Asian martial arts are taught with big group classes. Yeah, one so. thing that Moranzo does though, and it's in his, his guard progression in the middle of, of his second book, right? where he gives the, the progression of guards and he says, you know, this is how you should teach your students. So actually he does follow mm -hmm. Greg's pedagogical approach where he's, or uh, pedagogical approach, where he's uh, he's telling you to have your student form Cotolonga Alta, right? Or I think it starts with Cotolonga Stretta. And then he says, teach him all the cuts, all the different attacks from that guard, and then teach him the defenses from that guard, and then have him move into this position, and you're going to have him cut forward, and they're going to step into, uh, I think, Chingiari Porta de Ferro. And then he says, 
okay, this is the tactical consideration that you need to make for this guard. And these are the attacks, the defenses. These are the things you're going to teach your student. And then once they're ready for that, you have you test them on what they know of Kotalung Estrada and Porta de Ferro, or Chingiari Porta de Ferro Estrada, and then have them move on to end of the next guard. So yeah. he does basically go through that same progression. And yeah. I think in that there is something of him eventually taking that into, hey, here's the sword and small buckler form. Learn how to move now. It, yeah, and you know, it's funny you should say that because in a way, that one little passage that people, people always remember the part about the passeggiara in La Guardia, right? Yeah. In La Guardia. Um, my Italian's failing me today. But anyway, um, you know, the, about the moving in the guards, but they ignore the part where he actually says that, okay, teach them a guard, now teach them what to do from the guard, now teach them the guard. In many ways, he's giving you, when you're all done, the solo walking form of what is all of Moncellino's book one, right? Yes, absolutely. And, right, and Moncellino's giving you the lesson. Yeah. He's giving you the form, and Moncellino's giving you the lesson, um, which took me the longest time to notice because I kind of just, you know, had glanced through that and didn't think about it. And um, and it wasn't until a, a, a much later reread of Moreau, so I was like, oh, wait a minute. Um Manchelino isn't that unique. He's just writing out what Morozzo told you to do, and um, yeah, and uh, so so yeah. I, I'm not saying that the assaulty aren't important. I'm actually a big believer in the value of the assaulty. Um, but what I'm saying is that if you don't have the skills to understand what are in the assaulty, let alone to do them. Um, they're arguably not that valuable. Um, I learned a whole bunch of Tai Chi forms, and I learned a whole bunch of bullshit for what a lot of it meant. Um, <laughs> some of those actions I didn't learn until studying Armazari what they were really for. And I can tell you right now, like the number of people on this continent who could tell you what a Tai Chi sword form is meant to do are very, very small. You know, I mean, Scott Rodell's pretty much spent his whole, you know, career trying to get people to to believe that the Chinese sword can be used properly. And that's just in part because what most people have seen is what what one of my teachers called wave hands make pretty. Um, <laughs> and but so there's a real danger of it, of it becoming that, you know, yeah. there's there's plenty of video of people doing a salty out there or, you know, one of the things that's very popular right now is people doing flow drills, you know, spontaneous flow drills. And I'm not against that at all, but it's sometimes, you know, sometimes my Insta feed is filled with this and they're moving very prettily, but like their edge alignment sucks. Their arm extension isn't necessarily very good. I can't tell what they're trying to target. So what, what are you doing? Um, what exactly are you doing? What martial virtue does it have other than making you feel comfortable with the sword? And I would argue it has none. Um, it's it's very pretty, um, and that has its own virtue. Um, and I, but I think if you divorce it from a very direct, concrete application, you you're just kind of you're stuck. You'll get you can get stuck in the weeds. Yeah, so, you get sword jazzercise. Exactly, exactly, yep. and um, or you know baloney baloney bow. So, and, uh, so I guess what I'm saying is just to kind of, to, to pull this home, I would still teach the assaulty and we, and, you know, we do, we certainly do use a number of those things. And like when we start someone with sword alone, you know, Dalagokie's, um, two different solo forms are in there right away because, um, 
they're they're they're, they're probably so basic. The, yeah, they're yeah. so basic. Walking in and, the guards for great, yeah. Yeah, and you literally can stick, you know, like, and I've told people before, if you if you've got someone who's just kind of, you got to give them a quick course in buckler. The nice thing about those is you could stick any secondary arm in the in the guy's hands. Yep. And that you can do it with a two-handed sword, right? Like if I just need something simple, it works. So certainly those sorts of things, Morota's progressions, those are all part of that fundamental, those fundamentals. I just think the full assaulty, which are far more complex and are really a, a curriculum in, you know, microcosm, those shouldn't be where you try to start. So. Yeah, and, and I think, so the, the piece that I wrote about satyrs and nymphs and going through Manchiolino's progressions, you know, that was kind of the point that I was trying to get at, right? Like Manchiolino starts out with, book one teaching you the basics he teaches you um all the attacks and then the counters to those attacks and then he you know teaches you the guards and then he progresses into all of his um you know his wide play assaulty right and they're a full progression of play so it's like you teach him a, a student how to move with a sword martially and how to attack martially and you teach him about provocations and the core core elements that they need to know and then you teach them and you teach them how to move well right but the whole purpose of teaching them to move is to teach them to get to the point where they're going to get to mezzospada so that way then they can press mezzospada and then you get your mezzospada plays of which there are 34 it's a it's a tremendous amount of material you know and it's all based off simple crossings so and then you get book four which are more advanced defenses in my right. opinion, right? Like, especially with the sword and large buckler, those are more advanced defenses where you are learning how to, like what he says in his introduction, when he says all of your parries should go forward and, and should be followed with a repost. That's what I see in book four, right? You're, you're learning how to take a defense and turn it into something that's kind of an, Oh shit thing. Like what you see in book one with a lot of the counters where a lot of your, your, basic counters to a lot of the attacks are going into Gordia de Facia or something like that, you know, his, his typical O-shake counter. And then all of a sudden now you're learning how to progress from making a simple parry, taking that second attack and turning it into a counter attack. So, yeah, no, that's great. I, I I'm just going to have one more thing on there. Um, just coming back to that, that initial drill I told you we teach, right. And I'm going to, I'm going to have to borrow from Fiori here. Cause this is, this is an area where, terminology is the same but applications got a, a shade of difference right so for fiori you know the the largo ends at the half sword but also is about an asymmetrical crossing at the half sword right left foot forward to your right foot the stretto starts at the half sword and goes in but in its ideal form we have parity in the bind so i mentioned we have you know this this drill where i step in to stop an attack i step away i step back or i break it so in the same way you know, when you're teaching these one-step actions, like you said, um, Josh, it's not about the half sword. It's about trying to do something, and if it fails, you're in the half sword, right? So that first attack, stepping in, that we're teaching someone, we're teaching them a counterattack, slipping the left foot into the attack. But at the same time, we're also teaching them, or we're setting them up for, okay, they didn't die, or you didn't have time to make it an attack; it became a parry. Now you're in the crossing of Joko Largo at the half sword. The step away, same idea. Now you're in the crossing of Joko Stretto at the half sword. And so, you know, much then when we get to these actions um, with our students and we're ready to look at the half sword, they already understand a whole bunch of different ways to come to those crossings. 
they just haven't had a chance to dive down into what happens at that crossing. That becomes the next step. And, right. you know, and I, I'm sure that any of these guys would have said, oh, yeah, absolutely. If, if he cuts at you and you can just step offline and hit him in the face, you know, yay you. Um, but it doesn't happen very often. No. And so oh. now you're going to be in a bind and now you have to understand the half sword. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that's kind of one of those things, right? Like you, you typically see those first, second, sometimes third intention actions land on people that might have less experience. But when you get into fighting experienced fencers, that's where you find yourself at the half sword crossings, and then you know uh, the Gioco Strata plays become a lot more imperative. You know, it's it's actually interesting. I'm going to go on a tangent here for just a second and, and kind of take this off uh, off script. But I actually noticed something um, when I was I, I I got a question about one of um, my interpretations for Manchilino's book four, his sword and large buckler, and the defense against mm-hmm. the parry, and um, Somebody had asked me why why I thought the beat that I was using for the fifth play would work. And my answer naturally came back to Fiore. And this is something where, again, I think, you know, kind of looking at the, the overall scope of Italian martial arts is actually really beneficial. But the whole concept of instabile and stabile... The fact that that person is extending forward with that thrust means that I can beat. And if I miss my beat and it doesn't go to the the middle of their sword, if I don't strike the middle of their sword where you typically want to beat, especially if somebody's in a fixed position, if they're extending forward and they're in stabile, I can beat at their sword. And even if I miss the middle and I hit more towards their strong, it's still going to send their sword flying because their body structure is, you know, committed forward in that in that attack. And uh, that was that was something that was super interesting, and I, I'm looking forward to continuing to apply that through my study of uh, Bolognese fencing. But that was pretty trippy. Okay, so actually, this this next one is kind of yeah. kind of big. You you already kind of alluded to this a little bit. You gave us a, a nice natural segue that uh, I I sort of avoided by bringing us back into Morazzo. But um, uh, how do you approach interpretation? Sure. Um... So step one, it is not a divinely received script, and none of these guys thought it was either. Um, well, Narvaez probably thought it was, but he's kind of the, <laughs> as, as Puck Curtis said, he, he is sort of stuck being the defender for the Satan of historical fencing. So, um, But for the, rest, for the rest of these guys, I don't think they thought it that way either. Um, I, you know, I, I try to look at it a, a couple different ways. Number one. We are trying to recreate traditions, and what we're really trying to do is create modern branches of these traditions, right? We, we just, we can't, no matter how faithful we are, um, and, and that doesn't mean I'm not saying we can't do Bolognese fencing, I think we can, but we have to understand that it's Bolognese fencing with a, you know, who knows how many centuries gap, and that this is now a modern branch of that tree. It's not that tree. Um, so that's the first thing, is you just have to accept that or you'll make yourself insane. Um, the second thing then is you have to figure out what's the context you're trying to use it for. Um, obviously, you know, obviously there's a lot of different ways to approach this, and the HEMA community has grown big enough that a lot of different people take those different approaches. Um, you know, some are some are very much traditionalists in that they are interested in the art as the art's sake. They are interested in in the aesthetics of the art they're interested in the material culture of the art it's etc right um 
there are some who take that even a step further and if it's not in the book they won't do it um, i kind of call that the museum piece martial artist they are, are trying to build a faithful reconstruction of what's in the book with to my mind the risk that you are building a replica of something and not the something the flip side of course is the absolute just modern sports competitor who just wants to know will this thing work when i'm at xyz tournament um with my modern sword and my modern gear and and you know and and that is another component of the of the community as well and obviously the problem there is that because you don't know what you don't know and none of us have fought with sharp swords um you know you and i talked about this last time josh you can overweight something that's happening in sparring for being real and of course something that's in a judged match even more um and then there's most of us who are somewhere in between these continuums right like yeah. i want to spar because i think that gives me a way to pressure test some ideas um i want to use competition to see what happens when i fight people i don't necessarily know and we're adrenalized um you know i want to try to to train this stuff as rigorously as i can and more and more there's a larger component of the community who who get like if i don't really understand how the material culture and the intellectual culture around this stuff works i'm not going to understand what a guy who's been in his grave for 500 years is trying to tell me so so i fall somewhere more on that end of things than i do on the other side of things so my my approach is this this stuff isn't sacred and it doesn't exist in a vacuum you have to be willing to look around the art you study so you have to be able to look at like what came before it and what came after it and can what can that tell me where i can't answer a question you also have to be able to look at what is contemporary on its on its fringes so you know in the bolognese tradition 16th century obviously there's nothing i don't see a problem with looking at meyer or looking at a godinho for comparison purposes i don't mean you're just grafting but i mean you're looking to see how they answer questions where you might be stuck um you're certainly far better off doing that than saying oh well this japanese sword art is also from the 16th century right obviously we don't have a connection there um but then you do at some point hit a like how do monkeys with clubs work and if you start seeing a common a commonality across cultures in time and place um you're you're foolish not to at least make note of that um because you have to at some point understand that you're trying to take written words and create physical actions so you always start with the source and then you walk you work outward um the further you get from the source then the more reaffirmation i think you need for data points in other words if i'm trying to understand the mechanics of what someone's trying to explain about i'm just going to make something up cutting to close a line right and so that here's the line from body when you cross cross resolutely as you cross push down a little so that your point stands to his face okay it's a counterattack through a cut is what it is right it's it's basically what the germans would call zornhau ort or Fiori might call his first play of the first master of Largo. Um, but so if I'm trying to figure out, well, what does this mean? You know, push down and stand my point to his face. So what am I going to do? I'm going to look at I'm going to look at Fiori because he and Vadi are in the same tradition. If I'm still stuck, then maybe I'm going to look at 15th century German texts, and I'm going to look at the earlier Bolognese texts because one's closely related in place and is just a couple generations later. The other's closely related in time. 
And so I see, okay, so there's this Zornhow idea that has you cross and then extend in a thrust. Um, we see similar things. It just doesn't have a specific technical name in the Bone Age tradition. So now I'm starting to see these recurring data points of this idea that you can parry a cut by cutting into it. And even if you don't hit them in time, your points aligned for a thrust, as long as the whole idea has been redirecting your point. Now I have enough data points that I have a pretty good working theory for my interpretation. Understanding, I still might be wrong. Um, and then the other thing, and I did a lecture series during Zoom about this, which is that, you know, you have to have the right tools. You don't try to interpret Fiori with a 54-inch long fetter. It's the wrong sword, right? It's the it's the it's just the wrong sword. Um, you have to understand, you know, Charles. I, I'm really glad that Charles Lynn's been popularizing this, but the number of people who have been very, you know, who've who've uh, taken their shots at Roland Varjeka and his discussion on on stepping and footwear, etc., um, all because maybe they put on a pair of leather-soled dress shoes once and tried defense in their sal, um, but you know, have never gone hiking wearing armor and leather shoes or have never actually worn a doublet and seen how from the 16th century and seen how it literally changes your shoulder carriage because it has to right um you know all those sorts of things it doesn't mean you have to become a reenactor but it does mean that you at least have to try to engage with people who have that knowledge to understand how those things affect what you're doing and if if your goal is to interpret and accurately historically accurately and the last thing is, and this is a big one, is that as you're doing all of this, you have to become at least functional enough with the language and the intellectual culture of the period to get when you're reading jargon and when you're just reading words, right? Yeah. Um, right. You know, the word stretto is a real problem for English speakers because it means close, it means narrow, and it means constrained. And it means all of those things in English, in Italian. Um, but in English, we have three separate words, all with shades of meaning. And we keep trying to force fit one of those onto this Italian word. But really, when my guard is in stretto, it's narrow. When my play is in stretto, it's close. And sometimes when I'm in the stretto, my play is also constrained. But, but all of those things can be true. And it's funny because, you know, God forbid Hema people in America discuss silver, but it's funny because how does he describe his fights, right? Wide play, close play, guards are wide spaced or narrow spaced. And so I just bring that up because you see right there the equivalent to Largo in both and the equivalent to Stratto in both, but he uses two separate words. Um, and so I, I think it's a reminder that, you know, we're moving across time and across languages and idiom changes and no one got into this to be a linguist but you're stuck being a linguist so yeah there was a a, a recent controversy about whether or not hema is dead and hema killed it with a video that came out <laughs> yo is that, that that that's uh i think uh russ's video right so. yeah but you know i actually to sort of build off of your point, my counterpoint to that is that I think that HEMA is is more alive than it's ever been for the purpose that we have more material now to 
find those data points. You know, for 16th century authors in particular, you know, when I look at over the last five or six years, we have Lavino, we have, you know, two translations of, um, of Vigiani. We've got, you know, three different Murazzo translations, one in full. We've got Murazzo's Dagger. We've got Murazzo's Sword and Small Buckler from Leone. Uh, we've got two different translations of Manciolino, and we've got the Anonimo Bolognese. And, you know, outside of that, we've got the Riccardiano. We've got a, a bunch of other sources. And when I see all of that stuff start to come out, those are data points where, like, as a Bolognese practitioner, now I've got so much more data that I can go to without ever actually having to venture into, you know, looking at KDF sources or looking at Meyer and the Freifector sources or, or you know, even in some cases look, going back and looking at Fiore. Um, though I, I do, obviously, with the current run I'm on, I do think Fiore is important. But, um, that said, I, I do feel like I can find all those answers looking at 16th century Italian sources. You largely can. I mean, like I said, now and then you may not, especially when you're trying sure. to figure out terminology. But that's exactly it. And so, you know, as I said, um, you only jump from to the next ring away from your source when you just slam into a brick wall, right? And you just can't get an answer. And then that's when you make that jump because you're trapped. Um, but you're exactly right. You know, um, I mean, Russ is a bit of a gadfly and always has been. That's kind of kind of his kind of his jam, uh, and that's that's fine. Um, I, you know, the the whole he is Hema dead, Hema's dead, whatever. Uh, I don't know because I don't even know what Hema is. Um, you know, it's a it's a catch term. It's a catch term we made up years ago on top of another as a subset of a catch term. You know, Western martial arts. And in reality, it's like any other martial art. It's become big enough now that there are people doing HEMA-esque things for specific reasons. And if they're having a good time, I don't care. Um, but like you said, the end result is that it's achieved enough critical mass that there's enough people doing things and enough that, that resources are made available that would never have been available. So yes, if your goal was everybody was going to be, you know, these kind of uh, hermetic priests perfectly reconstructing things with in very deep erudite scholarship then yes i guess it's dead um if your goal was that there was any chance that all this work was going to survive into the next generation then it's doing better than it ever has and as Ralph, russ and i go back to the 90s to the era of the manuscript grubbers with steve hick um you know it's a hell of a lot better situation than when there was like 20 of us on planet earth exchanging photocopies and and god help us microfiches um so i i, I agree with you i i think the potentiality is is better than ever the one thing i get concerned about is when i run across people who come out to fence or you know come out to play with us is the there's a a diminished interest in the scholarship side to me and people a lot more people that just want to play sword tag that's a hundred percent true. That's a hundred percent true. And there's plenty of people who I actually meet who like don't even know that there's there's necessarily even books out there, um, or that if there are, they exist anywhere besides Wichtenauer, right? Um, and but but you know what? That's true if you're talking about you know judo or aikido or kendo or sport fencing. Um, that's that's the problem with a larger community 
Um, that's just the reality of it. I mean, I publish books in this stuff, right? Our sale, our sales are flat. They have been for years. So the community has grown, but you know, everybody assumes that like we must be selling a bajillion books. Um, no, but I'm going to give you the upside of that also is that, um, as a publisher, the downside is people no longer feel like they have to buy everything that comes out, right? Um, the upside is that's because I only do 15th century German longsword. Well, there's enough things for you that all you need to do is buy, which goes back to Joshua's point that, you know, you could just say, I, if it's not 16th century in Italian, I don't, I don't give two shits. And you could be perfectly, you could have a perfectly full shelf of works to, to pull off of. So, so I, I agree with you, Stephen, but uh, you know, I, I think it's the price we paid for being successful. And I don't, <laughs> I, I, I think, I think in my optimistic days, I think the overall price is, is probably to the good. Yeah. Fair enough. So, how do you how do you go about now that we've kind of established how we develop the interpretations uh how do you go about uh validating those interpretations sure okay well so first of all it it has to make obviously it has to at least seem to fit what the source says right i mean that that's just a given um but then the second thing is that and this is this is where some really cool interpretations um you know, go to the graveyard and where I certainly have, have sent some of my own to the graveyard over the years to my, my great, um, sorrow. So just because a play is really cool and seems to fit the text, if it requires you to do something that seems a complete and total oddball from the rest of the source, and there's no explanation of that, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense, right? Like, why is it there? And so it, so the guy who's the best for this as a source is Fabris. Because like Fabris explains why you should learn the sword alone and why you should not rely on hand parries, right? Totally shouldn't. They suck. Use the sword. Um, but then he has chapter on, on hand parries, right? But then he proceeds to explain exactly why he's including them and why you need them and how also by learning these, you'll be getting ready to learn how to use the dagger. Mm. So he answers the question for you wait, if I wasn't supposed to hand parry, why am I hand parrying, right? Uh, but most of these guys don't do that sort of thing. So if you get a technique and you're doing this and you're like, huh, well, that's really weird, you know? I never do any kind of cross steps in this whole text. And here I'm doing this kind of crab walk cross step um, to make this work. And it really seems to work, but it's totally different. It appears nowhere. And he said nothing about it. Well, now before we even worry about does this really work in my full kit when someone tries to hit me in the skull hard, before we even get there, I have to ask myself, well, is there a way to make this work that doesn't require that? Right. And that's, I think, I think that's where we all become our own worst enemies because we get really married to interpretations, especially ones that seem really freaking cool. <laughs> and, and then, and then we'll sometimes be like, well, I put my gear on and it works. Well, sure. Okay. It worked. But that still doesn't mean it's how, you know, a Bolognese master would have done it, right? And so that has to get married. Those two things have to get married. The Does it fit the overall movement aesthetic and tactics of the system combined with, you know, does it fit the, um, does it actually work when we really try to do it under pressure? 
and if it can't hit both of those then you probably haven't quite gotten there yet um, I mean obviously complex techniques may take time before you can do them in free play but if you can't even do it under just we put all of our safety gear on and I say you know okay Steven blow my head off right and I can't make that work yeah, well and even though I know the attack I know what's coming and I can't make it work then maybe that tells us something yeah definitely. so so but I think it has to be both of those things that's why one of the things I like is having heretical students that are always looking I mean they're super annoying to teach but the ones that are always looking to try to prove you wrong when you're teaching something mm -hmm. I've been caught out on a few of those mistakes myself sometimes and it, it always kind of emphasizes what you're saying which is the importance of being simple direct and violent essentially right right yeah outliers outliers have to outliers require some sort of additional evidence to you know to fit so yeah that's that's uh that actually leads into our next question pretty well because what do you do about gaps in player progression so a source not telling you to do what it with something for example like you know, a lot of times you'll be doing sword and dagger, and then next thing you know, you're, you have like three sword actions with no mention of what you do with the dagger through the progression. Or you might be doing sword and buckler, and you've got three actions with the sword, but nothing with the buckler, no mention of the buckler, nothing. You might even finish an entire play in some sources <laughs> <laughs> in sword and yeah. buckler without ever any ever hearing any mention of the buckler. So, what do you, what do you do about those? Yeah, you know, I'm going to I'm going to just mention this as a side note because I know that you've also dabbled with a uh, Lignitzer sword and buckler plays. Yes, I have. Yeah. Don't don't you wish everybody wrote them as clearly as those six simple little plays? So like easy. They're super simple. They're like an entire curriculum by themselves. And in his good little neurotic German way, he tells you every single thing to do with everything. Like so simple. So not bolognese. Um, no. Okay. So having put that aside, um, but actually part of the reason I played with those was specifically because we were getting so frustrated with some of the bolo stuff. Like where, where did the F did the buckler go? Right. Um, so this is my, you know, um, how I learned to relax, how I relaxed to learn to love the missing buckler answer, which is that um, I think, for example, in the assaulty, where the buckler's often missing, you know, it's often a floating piece of armor. We know that, right? It's just extended, closing a line. It's sometimes warding the hand. We know that. I think part of the problem when you're fighting double with small weapons, a, a Rotella is a little bit simpler because it's a lot more a cloak because they're, they're, they're relatively static because of their size. Um, but I think with those smaller weapons, the problem is there's a lot of places they can go and do go. Um, and there's a lot of variation possible. But when it has to go someplace, it has to do a specific thing, they tell you, right? You know, you're cutting at me and I'm going to, I mean, here, here's bread, bread and butter bolognese play with every combination. You attack me, I cross line, cross line pass with the right foot, you know, collect at the guard in Guardia de Faccia, right? Cut around with a reverso while making a, a pass at the left. Okay, bread and butter action. So with sword and buckler, I could just leave the buckler floating there. I could certainly, you know, I could certainly flip it over my hand. Or I could marry it to the sword so that it's making the grip bigger. Usually they tell you specifically there 
to basically conjoin the hands um, in whatever phrase they, they choose in that moment. So it comes up over and over and over again. So, well, why? Well, because you're moving right into the line of attack. And there's always a chance, especially against a tall opponent, their blade overrides the top of yours. But if you put the buckler there, there's zero chance of that. Um, and it doesn't matter what kind of hilt you have. Your hand's protected. So I think because of the nature of the blow, it's important that the, the buckler and the sword work as an item together. So they call it out. Yet, as I do the cut around, you know, am I punching him in the face with the buckler? Am I pressing his elbow with the buckler? Am I just holding the buckler up just in case? And I think the answer is you could do all of those things. So once you understand the action, you should do all three of those things. And so I, I think that's the tricky part fighting double is that they only give us the things where I have to do something with the secondary arm. And then we have to just play through the variants. Yeah, that's that's really interesting because, you know, I'm polishing up my techniques right now for the second half of uh, book one, chapter one, or book four, chapter one for Manchialino before we go and record those. And, um, you know, one of the plays that we've been looking at right now, one of the sort of loose interpretations that I put an asterisk to come back to was the uh, the fifth play, which is where you parry with your true edge and then you cut a reverso that prevents your opponent from ever cutting a mandrito at you. And it's a weird play because, you know, it's it's one of those things where you're doing this right foot step across and if you end up beating to their sword, their sword comes right back at you. And you're you're always open to a double, even if you cut that reverso to their face. And, you know, for from a martial perspective, that, that reverso to the face is never gonna be something that's gonna stop somebody cold in their tracks, you know? I mean you're gonna you might you might slice across their face or something. And so I've been going through like all these different iterations, trying to like work through this play and make it work. You know, a beat does also doesn't actually fit the Italian text because he doesn't use terminology that meets or fits with a beat. Right. It, it, it sounds like he's just making a true edge parry. And um, you know, I, I think uh, my training partner and I today we we actually finally settled on something that was you know getting this true edge turn up underneath, almost in a Gordia de Entrere type position. Mm-hmm. And then getting it sets up this beautiful buckler press with that right foot step across that then you can get that slice in. If you don't get the buckler press, then what you end up kind of getting is an opportunity for a buckler punch because if that means their arm is too low. And so, you know, you can you can basically just, you know, punch across with a buckler or something like that. And it's like you're saying, you know, you, you find yourself in these positions where you kind of find all the advantageous flow of the play and you mm-hmm. find where everything starts to fit and then it's like well you know Manchiolino Manchiolino doesn't specifically tell me to go for a buckler press there but if I've got the opportunity to get that buckler press on that outside arm on the outside of his arm pressing it into his body of course I'm going to take it you know Lignitzer like you said Lignitzer is like very explicit about like always going for those type of actions and that's one of the things that I think Lignitzer really opened my eyes to developing my interpretations for um you know a lot of a lot of manchialino and you know some people might find that heretical but you know whatever but i kind of oh, he, he taught me how to use the buckler in a way that's offensive right and and controlling and that's that's the thing that i find is i'm getting these these buckler presses i'm getting these you know collapsing positions and it makes it so much more uh re, like active instead of reactive i'm i'm pressing my advantage on my opponent 
So, what were you gonna say, Stephen? Oh, I was gonna say that I think one of the hidden things that's actually instructions in something like Manchelino is the targeting information. I kind of got this when I was studying the Anonimo. If you think about it, um, if you're cutting on the outside and you're throwing a reversal on the outside, the face is not a particularly good target. So usually, I think, at least in the Anonimo, and I'm assuming in Manchelino as well, you would target the head, uh, whereas when they give the face as a target, I really come to the conclusion that means it's from inside the bind, and it's like a slice inside, so it would be a reverso from an inside crossing. And so there, the target is actually giving you hidden information. That doesn't really play to what the buckler is doing, but if we work on the idea that the buckler is there to support the sword, then which is, I don't think, a crazy idea. Then, no, that's, uh, that's really interesting. I'm going to have to play with that. So that's what I started doing. Is, uh, But yeah. I'm old and fat and slow, so I kind of have to look for things to be really efficient. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, it's it's interesting you bring that up, right? Because that's one of the sort of the very... We came up with probably like 10 or 15 different variations on this play, trying to figure it out. Like, I had one that I was going with as kind of my standard, but we were trying to really do it in, an, in a partnered way to break the play right like that's one of the things that I think is is important like what Greg highlighted is you need to you need to try to break your plays you need to be able to take them into like sparring or, like action and so we were really trying to break these plays in every way possible and uh, you know one of the things that we had was an inside sort of parry and then kind of slice so that's pretty interesting I'm gonna have to I'm gonna pay attention to that now should we move on to the next one here? Yeah, 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 we can go. So, all right, so overall, um, you know, one of the keys to developing interpretations is having translations. But what constitutes a good translation? <sighs> wow, you really want to make, <laughs> make people hate me, don't Clearly, yeah. it's word for Every, word as close as you can. You know, yes. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The literal translation, the literal translation. is the absolute best and most important thing you Ideally should Ideally, with a drop-down menu so you can include every possible yes. definition yes. of that yes. word. So and you should, should also, you should also, if you're translating Italian, ignore every single source or bit of scholarship besides Florio's First Fruits. Yes. Because it's from the 16th century, and therefore it's decidedly received from the hand of God Himself. Um, so, yeah. Okay. So, um, okay. So now that we got that out of the way, uh, uh, <laughs> um, you know, there's there's a lot of ways to do bad translation, and um, uh, you know, and I think I think in our last interview, Josh, I said that you know the one thing that uh, that Germans, Italians, and Spaniards didn't need the HEMA community to do was teach them how to speak their own language. <laughs> and so I'm going to add to that the other thing that the world didn't need was the HEMA community to teach people how translation works, um, I, especially in a community mostly driven by engineers and computer programmers. It seems. Um, uh, they, it's really, you know, these, these skills have existed for a long time. Um, so the very first thing literally is just take the entire idea of a literal translation and throw it out the window. Um, and don't for one minute, tell yourself that by being more literal, you've got a better translation. Um, 
that is the answer for people who don't actually speak the language they're translating into it just is and um you know my italian my speaking italian's pretty shitty my my reading italian's okay my speaking italian's pretty shitty unless i spend a lot of time over there um but even so why is it pretty shitty um because we conceptualize in english differently than we do in italian and when you're not really being fluent in your head and you have to think about that you start speaking the other language with its words but your grammar mm -hmm. and you know and, and we hear immigrants to the united states do that in english all the time and you know there's a whole bunch of people who like to take pot shots at, at immigrants for that to which my thought has always been you go speak another language then see how you do um but but this isn't about politics this is or well, i guess it's politics of translation right is yeah. that to that <laughs> end to that end that's exactly the problem you have to take a, a it's, you have to take a language that has its own grammar and its own idiom and its own context and you have to move it into not just english but into fluent modern english so if if the english result at the end doesn't read like your mother tongue the way someone in your mother tongue would write it's not a good translation so that's that's just the first thing clunky does not mean good i don't care how literal it is um the second thing is you know you have to identify what is and isn't jargon to the best of your ability uh, i think i've told you about this one before but it's worth revisiting because it it's a great way to explain the difference between um bolo and armazari and how a little knowledge of both could get you into big trouble so a horizontal cut in the bolognese tradition is a tondo right, right. The word just means around. To go around the world is tondo il mondo, right? Okay. So there's one passage in Fiori in the equestrian section where it basically is literally the equivalent of what I described earlier about the collection in in uh, you know Guardia de Faccia, right? But we're passing each other on horses. So our swords meet, Madrido to Madrido. I hook my pommel over your blade and I cut around to the back of your horse as I or your your head as I pass on my horse. And so he says, cut around to the back of the head tondo but in the early 2000s people made themselves insane trying to figure out why all of a sudden aside from his senio fiori has this term for cutting horizontally when we all thought that was mezzano so maybe a mezzano isn't a half cut or i mean maybe it's not a middle blow maybe it's a half cut so it's just the same two fendente lines but just when you stop halfway that's a mezzano now all of that ignored that he literally then illustrates the damn thing and calls it a mezzano but they're like no no you see those are the arrows pointing that's the arrows pointing to see stop halfway um and so the my point here isn't isn't to take a shot at anybody it's to just say that you know we wasted a lot of digital ink and a lot of uh a lot of Alka-Seltzer on something because we took something that is both a piece of jargon and just a descriptor in one art and made it jargon in the other art, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so that isn't even saying like, is a Bolognese mezzovolta the same as Fiore's mezzovolta? This is literally taking a jar piece of jargon from one art and trying to make a jargon in an art that's unrelated so that's why you know you have to understand that and just because a tondo is indeed the name for a cut it didn't stop making the word mean around 
And there are perfectly good times where a Bolognese master will just say, step around. He didn't suddenly sneak an extra cut in. He's just trying, you know. So you have to you have to look for those those constructs. Make a tone dough, you know, where it becomes obvious. And um, so that's the thing, you know. I I you know, Stephen, I forget. I don't think the Anonymous is bad about this like Morozzo is. But Morozzo tries to stick every single descriptor in front of the word cut he possibly can. <laughs> yes. I love it, Pull, I love tear, it. rip, saw. <laughs> And he just, you know, he just means cut. But that was another thing. We spent we spent ages trying to figure out what all these different kinds of cuts were, and why does he need to find them? Well, because there's nothing to define. So, so that's part of a good translation too: is understanding what is the jargon you're looking at, and then coming up with a consistent way to translate it. Um, yeah. And like I said, sometimes that means that. It has to be consistent for your language, and that was why I brought up stretto earlier, right? If I was just translating the word stretto and I was doing a text on Bolognese, I don't tend to translate the guard names. I think the technical jargon should stay in the original language. That's me. Not everyone does that. But if I was translating it, you know, I would say the narrow iron gate or the narrow long tail, close, but I would say close play. Yeah. Okay. And so, and elsewhere I might say, you know, um, when you constrain his sword, right? So even whereas other times I would, you know, translate one term the same over and over and over again. Like tempo, right? Like tempo, tempo right. Tempo in the fencing manuals can mean, you know, like 30 different things. But if you're translating it, you have to try to figure out in that context, what does he mean by tempo? Right, right. Which can exactly. just mean now, but it could also mean in the motion of, it could mean at that in the moment when something happens, all kinds of crazy stuff. Right, and the simple fact that a dictionary says time doesn't actually tell you anything. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, no, and sometimes the authors are really good about calling out their own jargon, right? Like, um, with Manchiolino, at the start of book, I think it's book three, he gives you, he basically gives you a translator's note on, hey, this is the jargon that I'm using talking about like feet and how he describes feet and stuff like that um you know i think the anonymous is pretty good about that too Stephen. Uh, and you can speak to that in terms of in his introduction he gives you a really good explanation of a lot of the things that he's going to use that are jargon whereas Morazzo just comes up with all of his random jargon and gives you no no definition of what his jargon is but he makes up things that exist nowhere else in the entire Bolognese system so yeah and you also have to accept that he also isn't consistent in how he describes actions so you know sometimes you are stepping to your right and sometimes you're stepping you know to his right right you know like yeah. you don't always he flips how he describes those things. So, um, you know, there there isn't there isn't a, a, a simple passage. Morozzo can't find a way to complicate needlessly. He's too so, awful. Although he is way better than Altoni, that's for sure. Um, I, no one could ever pay me enough to translate that. <laughs> <laughs> I just answered one of that questions for you. Yeah, Jeff. yeah, yeah. You sure did. I, I just thought I would just jump right there to you. Yeah, um, I, I somebody, thought I somebody, it. somebody really should, and it should be somebody who's really fluent in Italian. Yeah. So, because. Um, oh, because you know what, Stephen, you and I are a little long in the tooth. There's just yeah. not enu- there's just not enough years <laughs> no, left to, to put it's ourselves. It's a twenty year that. project to do Altoni. Yeah, I, I think I tried one paragraph of him and was like, oh, forget this, dude. This guy's awful. 
You guys are just to learn Florentine fencing, it's not that important. You're yeah. breaking my heart. Listen, yeah. I mean, so, but the ultimate counter to Fabris is the Ricardiano, right? Because you were just talking about how Fabris tells you to always parry with your sword, and the Ricardiano talks about how only bad fencers parry with their swords, and this you should always parry with your hand, and, and these are the things that you should do when your opponent uh, right. makes the mistake of parrying with their sword. Right. On the other hand, the Anonimo Ricardiano is Anonimo probably for a reason. <laughs> yeah, well, well, I don't know. Don't go too far there. We could say that about the anonymous bolognese too. So. <laughs> oh, that was Manchelino's first draft. <laughs> so, yeah. Before he parsed it down into the necessary yeah. material. Yeah, I always wondered about Fabris too. If he knew so much, why did he have to go live in Denmark to make a living? Because it was a really well-paying gig. It's not. It's not like being Saviolo in England. Yeah, I don't know. Are you sure? <laughs> Yeah, because as I'm, soon pre- as he, I'm pretty, as soon I'm as pretty he could, sure. He wanted to get away from there. He's like, please let me return to Padua. Yeah, please, go, please. go look up. Go look up the bio of his patron. Yeah, sometime okay. right. of Christian. Yeah. Oh, besides, bit, besides yeah. being a hellrake, he uh, he also was a that was a, that was a good gig. And you know, and let's let's remember that that put the that put the bleeding stake through the heart of the German tradition. That so is, there is that. So yeah. Um, the guy from Modena, though, who's a, who's the guy from Modena? I I forget his name. Anyway, he was he did the good thing, which is he got somebody to translate his work into England English and didn't even have to move to England to do it. Oh, Degrassi, Degrassi, yeah, yeah. That is that is the ultimate boss move. <laughs> yeah. He gets to yeah. stay in Venice doing what he wants to do, eating Italian food, and still sell books in England. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So is that like the ultimate purgatory for an Italian fencer? Is England? <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah, there's is a, a just, hell. Is, good... Hell is Ireland, but <laughs> yeah. purgatory is England. Um, there, I read a description by this Italian chef, uh, basically calling England a miserable, like terrible little island. Basically describing to them how how to make a salad because they didn't know how to make salads either. Yeah, I uh, I always think about poor Hawkwood's widow. <laughs> who uh, after after the Florentines totally reneged, after uh, the Florentines totally reneged on the pension they promised her, you know, ended up having to move to his his family's home in England, being a you know an Italian a Florentine woman raised in in Tuscany, and then there you are in Northern England, like <laughs> you are really wondering why God hates you. So. Not not to rip on our friends in England. Not at all. It's just, I, it's just I, cold I love, and gray and rainy. That's all. I love right, right. As well, as my friend Mark Lancaster from the Exiles puts it, the weather forecast is drab with a chance of drabber. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah. So, how should we approach existing translations? Um, you know what? What are some things that people can look at to say this is a good translation? This is a bad translation. Does it read like your mother tongue? Step one. If you're struggling to just comprehend the language because it's too clunky, um, it's a bad translation. That's 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 just the first thing. Um, you know, the the second thing, assuming you don't have someone who's actually you know truly fluent in both languages to look at it and say, oh, this is a good translation, um, is can it uh, uh, can it achieve what it um, can it achieve what it needs to do, which is, um, are you able to actually read it as a physical instructional work and follow it coherently? Um, 
and that means certain things that would not be in the original like does it have punctuation that actually allows a modern reader to read it, <laughs> Dude, right? seriously right <laughs> does it have punctuation oh god so um so, because if it because if it doesn't that's not how we read things right um you know a, a great example of this too is and people lost their minds when he did this tom leone's father's translation is in the present tense it, like every 17th century book ever it's in the future it's in the future conditional in the original mm, yeah. we don't use the future conditional in english for anything anymore we did in the 17th century but his goal wasn't to create a 17th century english translation it was to create a 20th century translation at that time 21st now i guess 21st um it all blurs after a while but so you know so instead of if you were to find him in this guard you would then do blah if he's in prima you will take a quarto see the difference um one of those is much easier to read and in no way changes anything about the about the text instructions and it's how a modern person reads it the other one is literal and is grammatically correct but is not how anybody actually reads and it's not what the original author was trying to achieve so it's not a useful it's it's there's there's no benefit to doing that um the other one is there's an old copa pharaoh translation out there now where they didn't just not translate the jargon they didn't even they left it all conjugated so you know <laughs> think oh so steven just got that so imagine how many different ways the word stringere appears yeah it's a verb yeah. so right and every so, italian verb has about 70 different forms it sure feels that way doesn't it <laughs> um so imagine that and and then you get to the part that a lot of those conjugations require a helping verb but they didn't uh, not translate that so i mean i can't read it i have to keep flipping back to you know look at like what, what the hell are they saying so again that's not useful um you haven't now you're not faithful to either language so you know so those sorts of things if you're not going to translate jargon you need to um you need to be consistent in the italian form you put it in so i was going to um, say oh go ahead sorry I thought you no no go ahead i was just going to say unfortunately we have a language english which is really good at stealing foreign words right oh yeah so. it's fantastic um i was going to say that when i was doing my translation and i think what helped me the most is i tried to imagine reading it after three shots of jack and then i i would keep polishing my translation until i thought yeah if i had three shots of jack i could still read this and understand it and not be tired i i kind of like that actually yeah. i, I kind of like that so you know um but i mean it is funny like in in the class will our rapier instructor will say make a calf when he means a cavazione right <laughs> or or one of my other students will say That's you know what, when, he's cavazzioning, when he's cavazzioning <laughs> and we were laughing about it the first time she said it we all laughed and then we we're like that is like the most english language thing ever ever yes it is <laughs> And like when they're cavazzioning, and I'm like, and it's, I can totally see like some 17th century English writer doing that, you know. Um, so it, it's, but but so anyway, so obviously you don't want to become that formal with it, or that that informal with it, but you, but you want to just find a way to 
wield the jargon effectively without just creating a barrier to entry. Um, you know, and that also means if you're working with multiple texts, say you're trying to create something where you're quoting from something, um, you know, for God's sake, make some, some decisions about consistency. So one of my pet peeves is, uh, as you know, the Bolognese can't settle upon names for their guards. They all want to tweak them a little bit, right? And, um, and you know, the Anonimo, who, bless him, gave us Corolonga, Elonga. Um, uh, also just randomly sometimes drops E's. Drops oh. the E's in between, right? It's just Cotolonga Longa. And, yeah, that's uh, what it is. Cotolonga Longa, yeah. Yeah, right. But then the other ones always would, would stick the A in there, you know, that right. E in between. You so guys it's don't like, Tonga Tonga? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So it's like if you're going to do one of these things, like pick one, right? Like if you're going to if you're gonna quote from all these guys, um, don't make it even more confusing by sometimes calling it Cotolonga Estrada or Cota and then Cotolonga Estrada. And, you know, or don't make it squalombrado with a G and then switch it to squalombrado with a Q. Um, you're not helping. You're, you're not helping. You know, Fiori spells uh, Cengiaro four different ways in his manuscript. In our translation, we picked one. So so those sound like simple, silly little things, but you'd be amazed at how, how people get lost in thinking that somehow they're, they're lying to their reader. And you're not lying. You, you're interpreting, but that's because every translation is an interpretation. All right. So uh, kind of moving on from translation. Um, now we have to get into, I guess, the, the forefront of the HEMA discussion, which is, and this is going to sound like a stupid question, what's the importance of history in, in Western martial arts or in historical European martial arts? Giving me all the lob balls today. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I know I said this in our last interview. You have a choice between doing HEMA, Historical European Martial Arts, and Modern European Sword Sport, or MESS. <laughs> so, oh, good. Um, so that's really the choice between us, um, before us. And, you know, and if you want to do mess, then you can be messy and that's cool. Um, just know that that's what you're doing. Uh, there's a lot of mess out there. There's also a fair bit of heme out there. I think that's the point that Russ was trying to make in that video, by the way. Um, but, but you know, it, the fact that that acronym just happened to come to me one day um, really comes to, you know, people have spent years now making fun of the white boy samurai and the crazy stories about katanas cutting off you know gun barrels in world war ii and and all this stuff um but we're not immune to that we're not immune to that at all and i hear ludicrous just ludicrous things being said about the historical context of these arts um often when I read interviews with other practitioners, um, hear people talking, you know, look, you know, medieval historians routinely say some really boneheaded things about arms and armor because the way we teach history is, is very Manichaean where, you know, why would you ever look at the physical artifact, right? And newer generations of scholars are kind of changing that, but it, it's still very true. Um, you know, leave that for the, the archeologists. And, 
So, but you know, it works the other way around. So, uh, you know, there's a, a great book on 14th century warfare, and it is a really good book on infantry warfare. Um, but people are quick to jump on the the author, who is a very well known academic of of uh, late medieval warfare, um, for you know, talking about eight pound swords and and misdating armor in there. And and I agree, really. You sh I mean, I agree in that if this is your specialty, you should probably be better at that. But by the same token, um, the idea that like people are wandering through, you know, the Italian streets in 1520, bristling with weapons, constantly <laughs> cutting each other down in impromptu street fights um, is is crazy. I mean, I mean, someone did that. Giovanni de Medici did that at 13 and he got exiled and his last name was Medici. So, you know, um, it's so those sorts of things, I think, really matter. And I, I really think that if you aren't going to um, if you aren't going to do that, you run into some real problems. I, uh, you know, when I tell people that the the fencing terminology in the Bolognese text, the idea of an agent and a patient comes out of the duel, who initiates the duel versus who was the who was the defender. And it all has to do with legal terminology. You know, they stare at me blankly. Um, but but that's explaining to you why they're picking the terms they are. It's explaining to you why a guy like George Silver, who has nothing good to say about the Italians, is using the exact same terms, right? You know, when we talk about time or tempo, etc., and, you know, you've got Vigiani quoting Aristotle, um, and we still have people saying, well, but maybe, you know, maybe by 1550 they've... they've they've changed that in this area because that doesn't fit my interpretation. Even, even though Newton comes along and changes things, in England, Aristotle was still the basis for the understanding of physics until the 1730s. In most of Europe, it was until the 1760s. So, you know, so those sorts of things are important because um, without it, you are losing the context of what you're reading. And I, I, I so I, it does matter. It does matter. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty interesting. One of the episodes that Stephen and I are going to do um, is just on the history of Bologna. And I found this really interesting paper um, that was written. And uh, somebody went back and the Bologna, I'm going to throw out some spoilers here, but the, the University of Bologna actually had a... Uh, a scholarship program and uh, it was basically a doctorate program uh, for people who were not wealthy didn't come from a wealthy family but were highly qualified and the University of Bologna would bring them in for a doctorate program and then they would teach at the university um, and all of their dissertations were recorded and so there's there's actually a good record whereas um, and it was a it was a public dissertation so there's a lot of re record around what these dissertations were about there are copies of the dissertation that are widely available uh, and it's super fascinating to read through the things that these people were arguing because some of them seem you know very state-of-the-art but one of the things that was actually mentioned in this and the reason I brought it up is because when they're talking about physics, they're still arguing Aristotle's physics all the way through, up through like 1570 at the University of Bologna and a lot of these right. dissertations. Um, that was something that I had noticed. So that kind of built right. on your point. Right. Even though, right, even though 
you know, Plato has, has been rediscovered, etc. Um, and so, yeah, and so it's important to understand that, you know, it's important to understand that when they are talking about Germans and Italians and Spaniards, they're using those terms in a different way than we do. They are talking about really linguistic spheres of influence. They're not talking about nations in any way, shape or form, you know, and that changes things. Um, so wait, was Fiore a German or an Italian? Hmm, depends on which side of the Alps you're on and who you're talking to. Um, <laughs> Fiore would tell you he was a furlong. So right, yeah. he would tell you what city he was from. Yeah. Yeah. And well, and, and his native language wasn't even Italian. It was, it was furlong, which is to this day, a separate romance language. It is related to Italian the way, say, for example, Galician or Catalan is related to Spanish. So it's not a dialect. It's its own language. So well, we kind of get that in the northern Italian sphere, too, right? Like the Lombard language, which is much closer to modern Italian and why some of the Bolognese authors are actually easy to plug into Google Translate for some people. Whereas, you know, if you were to take like a Venetian, you, you're you not going to get... Oh, Venetian? <laughs> I'm not even sure the Venetians are really Italian. I, you know, in studying it, they almost seem like a separate country. Well, well I was going to say the Venetians, like... the Venetians spent most of their history not wanting to be part of Italy. <laughs> yeah. And their solution during the Italian wars was basically to say, okay, you guys do you. We're yeah. going to go focus on the Adriatic yeah. and build a naval empire. So, um, yeah. which... As it all turned out, might have been the right play. So was, yeah, the only way to win was not to play. Um, yeah, but yeah, it's uh, you know, so so my point is that um, it, all of that is really it's really important to understand the context. You know, um, it's it it's a, uh, and without that, you know, my favorite one still remains the play armored combat play everyone makes fun of, which is the guy unscrewing the pommel in Gladiatoria. Hmm. Right, like, like, what are you going to do with this thing? You're going to hit a guy in 15th century plate armor in the head with a pommel. Um, until you remember that the dueling code is hundreds and hundreds of years old, and it says that it has to be done with the with the accuser throwing a weapon. So he's sure not going to throw his spear, the best weapon in armored combat, against this guy, um, and then have to go against him with a sword. And honestly, if the sword is welded together like some of these judicial swords were um he's not gonna you know throw that away either so why not just have an unscrewable pommel throws it he's filled the rules of the duel and now here he goes it's cheesy as hell he's gaming the rules um but that's a great little point to understand he's gaming the rules and showing you how to do it so um But so all of that requires you to have some context of what you're reading. Yeah, I agree. So what do you think, how do you think that plays into uh, the importance of developing interpretations? I mean, how does that kind of relate back to kind of our earlier discussion of like, does, do you think the history matters in developing interpretation? Yes. Yes. And I think the reason for that is, um, is really simple. Uh, some of these, I mean, you know, doesn't necessarily do much to, to make you understand how to throw a Mondrito Squalombrado. No, probably not. Um, but does it make you try to understand the context of, for example, when Moroto is describing the difference between playing in Joko Largo and Joko Stretto? Or does it make you understand? Here's a great one. 
that I think we're still all sorting out. The flourishes that occur between the main pieces of the Assaulty, right? What are these guys doing here? Um, well, they're partly showing off, mm-hmm. right? They're swashing the buckler. They're swashing the buckler, but, but why? Because martial display is important as well, right? And they're doing it in a way in which they're still moving through the guards. They're showing their prowess. Um, they're kind of resetting into a new part of the form. The form usually kind of changes in character a little bit after that. But, but part of it is also a cultural thing. And so it, it does matter because it also tells you how you should be handling this. You know, there's that great line. Um, it's, in the, it's in the Anonymo, if I recall right. Stephen will correct me if I'm wrong. Where he talks about when you come onto the field, you shouldn't look like you're coming from a house of dance, but from the house of a master of war, right? I mean, he's describing character to you. You know, uh, I think it's La Palestra, which has a similar thing that says that, you know, that your eyes should burn, you know, your eyes should burn like demons. And, you know, he's talking about wrestling in this case. But he, like he's giving you all these ideas of their character and, and how you should behave and how you should think. And, you know, without having some idea of what this is a masculine art, right? What their notions of masculinity and martiality was, um, you don't, you don't. You're going to move, behave, and act like a 21st century person because that's what you are. So, yeah, that, I think one of the things we've talked about before is that the absence of dance. Now that we mention it, is I think maybe one of the biggest stumbling blocks into people learning to do these things correctly. Because uh, I think yeah. the important thing to, it's not that you actually want to dance when you're sword fighting, but you want the balance, and you basically really want the buffed legs that comes from doing jumping types of dances like all the time yeah i i would i would honestly say like what are the two things that you know have evaporated from our culture that these guys would have had um and you know for all of the other folks who are not guys listening on the thing obviously we're talking about their 16th century counterpart um is that you know men danced Right. And men danced in a very formal sort of way and men wrestled. Right. Now, wrestling stayed a core part of our culture until very, very recently. Very you know, recently. Very recently. That <laughs> yeah. is something really lost in the, you know, Last in the latter part years. of the. Yeah. Yeah. And declining, but declining steadily. Certainly boxing started to decline in the second half of the 20th century. Yeah. And, you know, and then wrestling became progressively more just, you know, usually ground wrestling as opposed to stand-up wrestling. Right. Folk wrestling kind of has become more and more uh, outside what what kids just do. But, you know, you take those three things and those activities are just assumed by Castiglione to be foundational skills of a courtier. Like, right. no courtier doesn't know how to do that. And so, of course, he doesn't, no courtier doesn't know how to fence. But all of those things are part of one aesthetic skill set. And yeah. that's the hardest thing, I think, for us to understand how to recapture. Um, is, you know, if you're really trying to do this historically, it's not enough to be able to hit someone with like a sword. You have to move like someone from this martial art would move with a sword. And that's informative. So that's that, those are the things that are missing. And we just have to understand that we are missing certain vital skills that you know Morozzo assumed that the that bumbling guy he didn't want to let loose with the general st- population of students already knew when he showed up so so what what are some examples of um, of his, history like 
specifically influencing your interpretations like are there any like that kind of like jump out to you from your memory that where you were like wow if i didn't understand the historical context for this i would have never gotten it oh boy oh boy sure i'm gonna i'm gonna say this and i refuse to take any comments online over it uh the university the universality of what I generally now call moving in good order, but which Silver would call true times. Once you understand that that entire passage is a requote of Occam, who is the principal commentator on Aristotle from the 14th century on, who was writing, though being an Englishman, was writing at the court of the Emperor Rudolf and was the single most translated authority on the idea of the physics in all of Europe from the 14th century until the early 18th, um, you begin to realize that, yeah, there is a, a way that all of any educated person in Europe conceptualizes movement, distance, and time. And, and once you see that, you start to see it every place. Um, so that would be one. Um, that's obviously one that shouldn't be controversial, but it is, um, for reasons, for reasons. Can I, so, because of that controversy, can I tell yeah. you something funny? We're going to, yeah. we have this, uh, this HEMA parody, or I guess like a uh, textual source parody that we're going to start filming pretty soon. And I'm just going to go ahead and spoil one of them because it's too good. And I think you're going to get a kick out of this, but we're going to have George Silver sitting down at an Italian restaurant and telling the waiter how bullshit their, uh, their menu is because the bread should never be served before the appetizer because you get too full on the bread and then you're not actually hungry for the dinner. So you should actually have your appetizer before your bread because then you act, you know, you you enjoy the appetizer, and you're not full from eating the bread, and then you can enjoy your dinner, because then you're not going to eat as much bread. That's brilliant. Yeah. So. Look that's brilliant. To that. <laughs> that's brilliant. Yeah. So that's one. So that that's 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 probably like the one that'd be easiest for listeners to, to totally get. Um, but there are certainly other ones. Um, you know, a lot of. A lot of the ideas about the armored combat material in the 15th century sources only make sense once you understand something about judicial laws and judicial duels. Um, and so when you're interpreting that, you have to realize that, like, you know, you're like, God, in all these manuscripts, like, the guys are holding the swords in, in both hands. And now and then they're half sorting, but like one out, one for like every 20 images. But they're always holding the blade here. Well, yeah, because they're fighting in single combat in a controlled format. And while you and I are dueling, no one's coming up alongside of me and hitting me in the base of the skull with a halberd. So, (laughs) like, we can do that. Um, You know, so uh, that becomes another thing. Um, The lack of of what we would call boxing in 15th, 16th century grappling, right? It's all, its striking measure is all contained in dagger defenses. And you think, why? I mean, certainly a drunk dude can throw a punch. Sure, but he's also armed. And punching is totally useless when we're wearing armor. Um, So if we wrestle, we're coming to -to body-to-body wrestling unless there's weapons. And so those sorts of things all start to matter when you think about that. You know, why is it reverse grip? Why don't the daggers cut 
You know, why does why does our, our dagger material look so different than a lot of modern knife stuff, which tends to today be drawn largely from Filipino martial arts, which is a tradition using cutting blades in a place very hot where people are wearing very little clothing. So, so what do you think about the sort of the rise of the Randian, I'm going to call it Randian, it's not actually Randian, but um, the Randian perspective of uh, sort of the trickle-down uh, <laughs> hemonomics, I'm going to call it that. Uh, so let me explain that. So, <laughs> oh, I think I see where this is going, but okay, go ahead. That we we have to understand armor fencing to understand something like the Bolognese arts, or so on and so forth. Like, you have to understand armored fencing to understand unarmored arts. So it's kind of top-down. Right, like top mm -hmm. would be mm -hmm. like this is yep. this is what you would see as the pinnacle of warfare. So this is what would actually inform the techniques below it. So, I guess it's ironic if I'm going to support something Randian, considering my own personal, <laughs> real-world political views. But um, but um, so I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna hedge that a bit, okay? okay. And yeah. here's what I'm gonna say: It depends on what arts we're talking about. I mean, this is a Bolognese podcast, so um. If we were talking about if we were talking about 15th century uh, German fencing or Armazari, I would say that honestly, you cannot understand it without studying armored combat, like literally impossible. Um, and a lot of the weird, bouncy, jumpy, sporty footwork we see, etc., would go away just by putting somebody in a harness and watching them try to do that. Yeah. Um, and also just that the you don't really, you don't really understand the martial context without understanding that, and that's why it's the knightly art. Um, someone like Meyer certainly wants to partake of that argument, but then only sort of dabbles and touches on armor, and he, in that sense, is like the Bolognese masters. So, um, here's what I would say. I would say that back in the day when I started doing this. Everybody looked at Bolognese fencing as being kind of proto-rapier fencing. It's this unarmored dueling tradition, single combat, blah, blah, blah. And that was, and that's because the, most of the people researching it were coming to this from having done rapier fencing, especially here in the U.S. where most of them were coming yeah. out of the SCA. Yeah. Okay. Um, so that was, you know, Bill Wilson and people of his era, Patri, Patri that, that was how they were looking at it. And that, make, and that made sense, right? And, and they were really just kind of riffing on the way that guys like, you know, that um, Castle, who I actually have a lot more regard for than a lot of modern people, and Jelly, and, you know, all those people were too. Um, funny thing, though, is that even back in the early 20th century, guys like Novati in his, I, I just got done translating his intro, and where he does a pretty extensive and pretty good comparison of Fiore de Morozzo. And makes the point that you know this is this is a military art. These were military arts. These guys clearly felt that they were training people for for dueling for sure, but also for skills that would serve them in battle. Yeah. But having said that, um, the Bolognese don't really emphasize mounted combat. I, you know, I know that Delagoche has got a jousting section, um, but that's its own beast by that period anyway. Um, they don't really emphasize that. They don't emphasize armored combat as a separate art. Obviously, if you're fighting with pole arms and you don't have some kind of armor on, life has done you dirty. Um, 
but but they are talking about judicial dueling and we do know that in this even in this period the assumption was that anybody of any kind of quality fought judicial duels in some degree of armor um it's why Moncellino gives you advice about what kind of armor to pick um you know we know that that people like pazzo in the the century before had referred to fighting unarmored in the lists as pimp fighting um so isn't that great which which by the way which wow. by the way gives you a whole new take on fiori's five unarmored duels right yeah right and it yeah it tells you they're illicit they're illicit as f right so um so so do i think that that means that if i want to start with bolognese fencing first thing i should do is buy a 16th century half harness no no i don't but i do think that people would understand more about things like sword and rotella sword and buckler even the pole arms uh the imbracciatura um by having experience in at least partial armor at least the armor that a, a bolognese gentleman serving you know in uh, as a foot soldier or the average condotti arrow would be expected to own you know a mail shirt or a breastplate um greaves a helmet gauntlets um something like that so I do think that in these earlier arts, if you really want to study the whole art, you have to study the sword, you have to study pole arms, you have to study some close quarter combat, and you have to at least get some experience moving in armor or working with those who have. Um, so, so yes, I guess that's my Randy intake on it. So. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So I put dirty. it. I'm sorry. I put it in uh, those terms, but that's, oh, man. I was just yeah, thinking, no, no, you know, but trickle the, down economics, so trickle down yeah, HEMA. And... Yeah, yeah. No, I get it. I get it. And and <laughs> but, uh, you know, and it's funny because I when I've had this conversation, people have said, "Well, that is really elitist." And I'm like, "You're studying the martial arts of the military warrior aristocracy in some cases, <laughs> yeah. or the yeah. really wealthy or the really wealthy townsman class." who very much do not associate with the farmers in the fields. So, well, and I mean, that's, you know, I think that's a lot of the stuff that Stephen and I have also found in our research. You know, we've, you know, the the elite mountain troops of Bologna were, you know, that was or, or Brissigalia. Like you've got you've got some civilian forces that would have been less armored. Um, that these techniques like would have unarmored. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Like drug that... ass guys who own two sheep. <laughs> <laughs> that these right. techniques would have been really beneficial to and and it, it seems like that's that's kind of what this is was geared to in a lot of ways but then you also have elites that are trying to formulate these ideas and S uh, steven's got a really great theory on this that he can speak to and i'll let him do that but um you know it, it kind of feels like that's where the bolognese have a divide but at the same time you look at comments from like Manchialino where he t tells you to keep your steps even and and make sure that you're even you have even stepping as you're approaching your opponent like that to me it that makes more sense having context and armor right like he still mm -hmm. is thinking about that more upright posture where like i think of exaggerated postures like fabris or even capoferro going either forward or backwards that never would exist in armor like you could not do that in a battlefield setting you know and the anonimo talks about that too being able to step in a way where you could step on you know you could walk in the grass or you could walk mm -hmm. on you right, know it's and, like and, first rule of martial arts don't fall down exactly right right, right. but th those are definitely even more everything that you do from my experience in armor everything that 
might make you slip when you're doing it unarmored mm. is going to put you flat on your face, right? Right. Hands down. Like, you were just talking about shoes, right? Like, I mean, even the shoes become that consideration. So, mm -hmm. but um, without going too far off on that tangent, Stephen, why don't you speak to the sort of the evolution of, of Bolognese arms? Yeah, so, well... Uh, I don't know if I'd say the whole evolution, but the part that we're looking at right now, which is early 1500s, mm -hmm. um, late 1490s, the idea that my theory that I'm kind of playing with right now is that these arts are taught to like officers. And the reason why there's such a split between, or they spend so much time teaching the theory of weapons and then the practice of weapons is to first show them how to fight but also give them the theory so they can then basically pass that information off to either infantry volunteers, militia companies, or you know militiamen, or whoever they need to. Because uh, the economics of it, it looks like, as we see from Morozo, we get a sense of his prices, and it's those are you know like annual wages for a craftsman. So that's not just an average person learning that sort of thing. That's definitely Exa exactly. Yeah, the, the cheesemaker is not going to Morozzo to learn right. how to use the two-handed sword. But it's not necessarily super expensive either. It's not the Rangonis and the, you know, Metascottis that who could afford to pay more for a private lesson. It's kind of your your bourgeoisie essentially. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so and it's kind of so the bourgeoisie can then teach the craftsmen how how to use a spear when they need to put an army into the field. Right. Well, and you know, and I think that's why a guy like Fiore or a guy like Paulus Kell, for that matter, right, who's working for a duke or Fiore who's working for a marquis and before that a number of fairly, you know, fairly significant condottieri commanders make a point. You know, he makes a point that he's been well paid. Right. Right. A lot of fencing. Ma most fencing masters are moonlighting. Yeah. You know, Umberozzo getting to be a fencing master. I've always wondered if part of the reason Moncellino wasn't obliquely taking a piss at him in his book about putting his prices up on a wall he wasn't just flat out jealous. It's like, really? You get to have a school and I'm like, you know, um, and I'm yeah. working part-time as a scribe or, or whatever, right? But, um, you know, Vadi was likely a physician. I mean, most of these guys fencing, and, and this didn't change. You know, it, it, you know, through the whole early modern period, we see that soldiers, and this is of course the birth of this military revolution, Soldiers learn some very basic skills, and then if they want to learn more, they have to go hire a fencing master to learn it. Right. And that's that's true, you know, in the Napoleonic era, that's true. Um, you know, here's like, here's, you know, three parries and four cuts, and go get them. Go get them, kid. And th in this case, it was probably more like, here's how you hold a pike. Yeah, pretty much. Here's how you march with a pike, stand here, stab. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And then if you're and then if you're of, you know, if you have of greater means where you're expected to either pay for cavalrymen or be a cavalryman, um, you're also that means you're also expected to know what to do with that. So. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that's important to understand is that, you know, would would Joe Schlub or I guess in this case, Giuseppe Schlabati um, <laughs> would, you know, would 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 Giuseppe Schlabati be an expert in the Bolognese school? No, I doubt it. Whatever, you know, whatever training he had would probably look like, um, you know, uh, honestly, it probably it probably look a lot like Fiori's sort of one hand lesson, right? 
Here's a universal. Here's I mean, here's a universal parry. Here's here's a couple of grapples, and you know, by the way, probably followed with that. Here's how when your sword's up high, you throw it back the other way in case you missed. And <laughs> like, you know, hey, you, you do know that those... a thousand times, kid. Yeah, right, and hey, ready to fight. Yeah, well, and you know, I, I published an, an ish, uh, essay on this a long time ago. I think it's on the freelance blog, where it's funny because you know the the Chinese in World War II put together this um, this Dao regiment, you know, like this two handed falchion regiment to deal with the Japanese coming. And to deal with bayonets, <laughs> and they basically they didn't have enough guns. So what they wow. basically taught them was the exact same universal parry: hold the awesome. thing, hold the thing low on your right, cut up to knock it aside, cut back down, wash, rinse, repeat. So um, yeah, you know it, it's I'm sure they were taught there are three blows: there's a mandrito, a reverso, and a thrust. Yeah. So since so. we're on the topic topic of peasants. And learning to fight, I'd like to bring up one of my favorite condottieri, who has, I think, the coolest name of any condottieri, which is Melchiore Ramazzotto. It just sounds like somebody you wouldn't want to mess with. Absolutely. The demon condottieri. Yeah. Yep. So I think he's one of my favorite. He's, a, he's the only one I've seen so far that was a straight, stone-cold peasant uh, that then made a living, a very successful living as a uh, condottieri. He also was routinely the commander of the uh, the Bolognese mountain troops as well, right? right? Like, I mean, right. he was that was kind of his his get and go. That was his thing. Yeah, yeah. he was a badass. So, uh, what's uh, what's let's talk condottieri here. Who's your favorite condottieri, Greg? So mine is uh, Bartolomeo Colleoni. Oh, um, oh, you because, picked a good one. Yeah. because he is the guy who beats the system. So, you know, the Cadotieri bios are great because every single one of them is like a movie or an adventure yeah, novel. Dude, so true, Absolutely. Dude. So <laughs> combined, combined with The Godfather, right? Because, yeah. like. Okay. Right. So it's not just me. It no, really no, does no, seem like no. everything is a god, like a, no, a godfather no, the, the, beginning. The whole again. thing feels like you're, you know, you're in the mob. I mean, my, yeah. my, one, okay. of my, one of my, right. one of my. One of my favorite Condottieri stories is, is actually in Ferrara in 1409. It's actually outside of Ferrara, but it's with Niccolo d'Este, Fiore's patron, the same year Flower of Battle's written. Um, no connection to Fiore. But, you know, it's the whole bit where um, he's got Sforza, the elder Sforza, as his con- chief Condottiero, uh-huh. and they're, they're going to negotiate with, I think it's uh, Otto Buono, right? So, um, good eights. Which doesn't that sound like a mobster That's name the right there? I'm gonna yeah. go go meet up with good eights, and <laughs> and and like Nicolo's like totally you know he's totally sick of dealing with this dude. He's just a thorn in his freaking side. This is a fight over yet again Parma and Rajo, and so they show up and Sforza being you know um, the uh, being from a family of horse ranchers had this quirk where he used to like to ride unbroken horses to show what a great horseman he is. So they have this agreement. We're each going to bring like two guys with us, and that's it. Maybe it's three, but it's just a small group of guys. And they go to this meeting, and Sforza's horse starts bucking and jerking around, and it's running. You know, like well, what the hell is he doing? And you know, Nicolo's like, hey, it's Sforza. You know how he is. <laughs> and so, so his horse is bucking and riding around, and they're negotiating, and then all of a sudden, Sforza, who's flopping around the field on his horse comes up alongside Autobono in complete control of his horse, wraps his arm around his neck, and plunges a dagger in his chest oh, and just yeah. kills him right on the spot. Dude, 
and it was like, I mean, you know, he might as well have said, "You disappoint me, Fredo." So <laughs> you know, it was. Um, so it's, uh, you know, and then and then his kid goes ahead and manages to totally uh, blackmail his way into being Duke of Milan. I mean, they're great. But Coleoni, what's cool about him is that. You know, he's he starts off as this minor as this minor noble. He's born in fourteen hundred, I think. Yeah, fourteen hundred to fourteen, like seventy, seventy-five, something like that. And um, you know, it starts off things start off bad with with another very condotiary thing. One branch of the family trying to whack you to take your shit. Yep. And he is, according to legend, he's like off in the hills with this priest. I, I I'll let you speculate. Um, when uh. <laughs> When when the the move gets made on his family and they try to burn the house out, and he he flees into you know into Milanese territory to other family to protect himself, and he's he's young you know he's he's young he's like a, he's I don't know like twelve something like that, but so basically you know he he loses everything very early on, and he manages to eventually um, after a couple of other misadventures make his way south. And he ends up both working for Sforza for a time, and then um, um, oh, what's his name? Uh, Arm of the Strong Arms, Braccio. Oh um, yeah, yeah, Braccio da Montone. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Sforza's Sforza's, Sforza's uh, you know kind of bet noir. Right. And so he ultimately serves under both of them at different points in time, learning both of their two sets of tactics. So both the the like all on hard cavalry charge, heavy cavalry charge, and the kind of dispersed attack, and he gets really good at both. And then he has a crazy freaking career that involves, you know, literally shit like he's a prisoner in a castle and he literally opens his own wounds so that they'll bleed, so they bring him more bandages, then takes the bandages off and makes a rope and climbs down. <laughs> mugs mugs a monk for his robe and gets gets out of town you know um he he married he marries an heiress and but he's also got a courtesan in venice who he's had a who he has a thing with who hires and who gets upset with him and hires an assassin to kill him um he manages to become captain general of venice and not get killed by the venetians which is like the ultimate that's, achievement yeah, that's, ever. that's amazing, amazing. Yep. that is because yeah. because really if there's any lesson it's don't work for venice it never <laughs> yeah. goes well everybody hates them <laughs> yeah and well and and they always if you're their commander you always end up blind castrated and in a dungeon somewhere so like <laughs> yeah. but but he not only does he pull that off you know he gets um he gets all of his land in, Ber- in bergamo he brings all these incredible painters there to to paint frescoes. He creates a school and a dowry system for um, for women who have no dowry because he has he had only daughters. And then of course he manages to not only you know die as their captain general, but he gets this promise from them that they're going to take care of his family, give them this stipend, and they're going to put a statue of him in the Piazza San Marco. Where even the Doges don't get statues. Oh yeah, yeah. it's like the biggest statue ever. Yeah, and now, too. right? It's that huge. It's like it's this huge bronze equestrian statue. I've seen it. It is not in the Piazza San Marco because they do everything else they promised, and then they're like, you know, he's dead. He won't know the difference. And they actually, they actually, it's a little bit. It's a about the equivalent of like three blocks away. So he doesn't end up in the Piazza San Marco, but. I love him because he was very good at what he did. He uh, certainly, compared to some of these condottieri, was far less of a sociopath. Um, 
and he actually dies of old age. Old age. That's the ultimate win yeah. right there. It he is. Died rich and of old age. And yeah. did die of syphilis. And Amazing. and if you've ever seen that equestrian statue, he's got a face of a guy who looks really pissed off. Oh, he does. <laughs> He looks actually really looks kind of constipated. Like I can't tell. He, he, he angry does. Or it, constipated. It, 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 or angry because you're constipated. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, so I'll, I'll I'll give my favorite condottieri, and it's gonna kind of, it's another another face that you might see if you're in the in the uh, in, in the square of Saint Mark's. So, it's uh, Lucio Malvezzi, and uh, the reason why. Malvezzi. Yeah, so I had to go with Melvetsi just because of where my current area of study is. But I, I love Melvetsi for his brief stint, his brief stint of brilliance. So I'm not going to get too much into the weeds and details about his early history. Um, but basically, after after the start of the League of Cambrai, Melvetsi proves himself to be a total badass. So he starts out at the Battle of Agnadello, and uh, saves um, the Venetian uh, overseer of his company from certain death um, from the French, gets him away, manages to take his entire force away from the Battle of Agnadello and get them into Brescia in good order, which, if you know anything about that battle, nothing after that battle happened in good order. So it's, no. <laughs> it's an impressive feat. But then it gets better because in the siege of Padua that happens, um, you know, Francesco Gonzaga is coming up to the city of Padua and he's trying to get into the link up with the Imperial forces and Speaking Malbezzi. of syphilis, by the way. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody had syphilis at this period. I have yet to find somebody that didn't die. I don't of think I don't think syphilitic my symptoms. My contributor did not. No, he didn't. Oh, yeah. So Either way, uh, Francesco Gonzaga is coming up, and uh, Malvezzi hears about the fact that um, uh, Gonzaga is on his way, and uh, so he sends a, a captain of Stradiotti out to go and meet him. And this, basically, this captain is like, "Hey, um, I want to surrender." So uh, Malvezzi or uh, uh, Gonzaga is like, "Yeah, absolutely. You can you can surrender. Go get your men. Come back. Lay down your arms, and you can surrender to me, and then you can join my forces." So he goes back to Malvezzi. Malvezzi and his men kind of ride down. They grab a bunch of peasants from the city of Padua, intersperse them amongst their troops, so it looks like they have their camp followers as well. So they're bringing their families. They ride into to Gonzaga's camp, and then basically, um, you know, Gonzaga thinks that they're going to surrender. They don't. They pull out their weapons. They start just hacking down Gonzaga's men. Gonzaga is in the middle of the night. They do this. And then, uh, you know, Gonzaga's sleeping. He jumps out of the back window completely naked and runs through a field and is eventually captured by a peasant. But just all these badass things. He goes head to head with the Chevalier Bayard, um, who's, you know, one of the more famous French knights, um, you know, in the just ruse after ruse after ruse and I, I feel like there's like a five year period where Malvetsi was just absolutely on, on fire. So and how's it all end for him? He dies of syphilis. <laughs> there you go. There you go. I noticed I noticed you were trying to trying to not trying to work around that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. That's 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 the part we were all waiting for. <laughs> 
he he does he does end up having a uh, a very shitty spell as the commander general of the Venetian forces, but when the syphilis had got to him. That's probably why the syphilis got to him. Yes, we can put that in air quotes and it'll make more sense. Yeah, never <laughs> never become commander general of the Venetian forces. Also don't dip your wick in the Venetian delights. That's probably another probably another good plan. Yeah, cuz the Venetians, I found out through some of our research were actually very well known for having some of the best um and having the sex industry in Venice was one of the most prominent things about their economy. Right? From a non from an internal perspective, like from an actual like in Venice, that was that was like primary driver of their economy. That was super I guess interesting. They, they did that and blow glass, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so. Cool. Yeah, that's some great stories about the Condotti area. So that's kind of going to be our focus for a while here. Is we, we got just tons of these great stories, like you said, each one reading like a, a, a Hollywood movie mixed with The Godfather. So. Oh, ab- absolutely. But it also shows part of what makes Italy so unique in you know the 14th 15th 16th centuries compared to the rest of europe is that the condottieri are proof that there is a degree of of social upward mobility through arms yeah that totally. is just you know people make a big deal about like hawkwood being knighted robert knowles being knighted in the hundred years of war by by edward and that's true certainly that would have never happened in france but you know in italy you've got people like you know gata malata and a lot of these guys who come from just nothing and they are ruling cities and commanding major armies in the field and i mean that just would have been unthinkable yeah it was really about virtu above all else like you just right you just do all of what you can do and you kind of the cream rises to the top they just had too many uh i think they had too many chefs in the kitchen is the big problem in italy Nobody yeah. could agree who was in charge, so they were all squabbling. Yes, yes. And, you know, that remained Italy's problem right up until unification. And really, this Still now. many of them would tell you. Yeah, yeah. It's time <laughs> to be the first to tell you that. Oh, oh there's one Italy? You're so cute. They, they yeah. always tell me that when I get there. Yeah, so a, I, um, yeah, yeah, you know, actually, that's maybe the last thing that, that's worth mentioning about that period is this idea of virtu, which comes from the Roman virtus. Because uh, everyone, whenever I give lectures on that people are like oh yeah virtual these guys don't sound very virtuous but of course it doesn't mean what we mean by virtuous which is to be this kind of you know moral paragon it means to to live life to your fullest potential and with a personal honesty you know like like the romans considered mark anthony to be a perfect example exemplar of virtus um i don't think the Romans thought he was a particularly moral guy. That right. wasn't really the point, right? Right. But you know, um, you know, John Galeazzo Visconti was hardly virtuous, but he did almost unite all of Italy under him um, because he was brilliant and he knew how to play the game. So yeah, so these guys, right? This idea of virtu, of basically you know stepping up and daring to to Just do, do it and all. be, be more, right? Yeah. Right. Right. It, it all comes from that word vir. Um, from Rome, from uh, Latin, right? Exactly. To be a true, to be a true man, as opposed to a mere, uh, you know, mere womo. So, um, so yeah, it's it's a very interesting thing because it's not a notion we really have now. But I think when you understand that, you also understand like why is it more important to show up and fight a duel, even if it ends up inconclusive, 
right? You know, why is it important to show up and fight in these armored deeds, even though like no winner's chosen? Because it's about the doing of the thing, and it's very different from how we look at at things today. So, yeah. that's awesome. Well, Greg, we're gonna have to have you back on some point. Maybe we can just do nothing but go back and forth on condottieri stories. I think I, 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 you know, I, I can almost I can almost picture that we could be called like you know, blood, death, and syphilis. <laughs> <laughs> Blood, death, and syphilis. The life and times of the condottieri. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, oh, and and 15th century popes. Oh, oh God. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I got the impression with Italy that, uh, you know, if you have three Italians, there's two conspiracies, unless one of them's a cardinal, and then there's four. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. 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 And by, you know, 1527, they all have syphilis. So, <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, man. All right. Well, so, Greg, right. thanks, thanks, thanks again. Greg. Thanks for coming on. Appreciate it.